0: One of his earlier books, entitled The Holy Spirit. Billy Graham wrote of an old American Indian legend that tells of one Native American who came down from the mountains and saw the ocean for the very first time in his life. And he was awestruck by the overwhelming scene that he that laid out in front of him, and he requested from someone a small quart jar. And as he waded knee-deep into that ocean, he filled the jar. And he was asked what he intended to do with it. And this was his response. He said, back in the mountains, he replied, my people have never seen the great water. I will carry this jar to them so they can see what it is like. Before he died, Pope John was asked what church doctrine needed the most re-emphasis today. Interestingly, he answered the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now, whenever I attempt to preach a message on such an enormous topic as the Holy Spirit, I feel like I'm trying to capture the ocean in a quart jar. It's impossible to do it justice. And in fact, by attempting to explain him in human terms, we almost do him an injustice. How can the infinite be described by the finite? How can one harness the wind? At the same time, I believe God has placed within us as Christians an unsatisfied hunger for a closer walk with Him. And we secretly long to experience more of Him, to have a greater understanding of who He is and what He's like, to embrace Him wholeheartedly and not to fear Him as if He were some sort of a loose cannon, unconcerned about our, our safety or our sanity. In a personal and provocative letter written to his pastor and close friend, one man put it into words. And I think he captures what many of us feel in our hearts when we think about the Holy Spirit. He said, there's a yearning in the evangelical world for a greater sense of intimacy with God. I believe we have had too much head and not enough heart. There's fear among us evangelicals that that we have missed out on something spiritually. The abundant life we've sought is not altogether fulfilling. There is a craving for spiritual intimacy with God that is seldom if ever satisfied. Could it be that what is really missing, the thing that would give us an appetite for daily prayer and Bible study and personal dynamic, is the empowering of a more profound measure of the Holy Spirit? Don't we need to let the Holy Spirit out of the closet, he asks. And evangelicals may have believed the spiritual world is flat, that if they sail too close to the edge of Christian experience, they'll fall off into emotional oblivion. So we've run away from all but the most intellectualized expressions of the Spirit, as though we were some kind of sea monster. Evangelicals are reasoned believers, almost too logical, yet we've always suspected that too much emotion has been let out of our Christian experience. Many of us yearn for spiritual passion, which has become only a flicker of light, to be turned up several notches. And then he asks How would a new, unintimidated theology of the Holy Spirit change our experiences in worship, in prayer, in witness? And in spiritual confidence. And he ends by saying, Some of us need a revolution. I get the sense that this man has a spiritual pulse, don't you? And he's concerned that it be kept alive. I can relate to his emotion. Can you? For some, it's scary to think about the Holy Spirit that way, isn't it? With a so-called conservative American evangelicals, we want everything neatly packaged, neatly explained, definable, controllable, God in a bottle. But I ask you quite sincerely, who among us can control the wind? Which of us can bottle the ocean? Now, please don't think I'm getting a little too close to the deep end here. I have no intention of leaving the theological moorings of scripture that has been put down. I am committed to this word, hook, line, and sinker, but his word is a deep ocean, isn't it? And most of us have been content simply to fill our quart jar. We've never gone past our knees in it, really. None of us should be content with that. There's always more to learn. There is always infinitely more to apply. I agree with something a well-respected pastor once wrote. He said, as long as you keep the plumb line true, just remember that you may have a great deal of space between where you are and where the Holy Spirit wants you to be. We're all only as close to the Holy Spirit as we choose to be. And for many of us, there's a lot of space between us and Him. Whether it's the fear of the unknown, the straitjacket of tradition, or maybe even the obstacle of our own personal excuses, correct me if I'm wrong, but we are the ones who have put a distance between us and the Spirit's transforming fire. For some of us, it's time to eliminate that distance. The Spirit is never satisfied with the status quo. He is in the business of radically changing lives. That's His desire. It always has been His desire. The focus of the Spirit is the transformation of your life. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Whenever the Spirit enters the life of a person, there will be a radical transformation. It is inevitable. It happened in the Old Testament. It happened in the New Testament. And it still happens today. Because as the scriptures state, For I, the Lord, do not change. With God, there is no variation, no shifting shadow, as it says in James. When the Spirit enters a believer's heart, it is a defining moment in a person's life. It was for an Old Testament prophet named Ezekiel, And also for some New Testament disciples. And so we're going to look at those juxtaposed with each other. Ezekiel in the Old Testament and Acts in the New Testament. So I'd like you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 1 if you would right now. And I would like to suggest at least five radical changes that occur when the Spirit truly transforms a person. We're going to look mostly here at Ezekiel chapter 2. But... We're going to compare it to the book of Acts a little bit. Five radical changes that occur when the Spirit truly transforms a person. Number one, the Spirit transforms human arrogance into authentic humility. Let's start with Ezekiel chapter 1 and look at verse... Well, let me first of all read the first four verses. Now, it came about in the 30th year on the fifth day of the fourth month... While I was by the river Kibar among the exiles, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzi in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kibar. And there the hand of the Lord came upon him. And as I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north. Skip down to verse 26 for a moment. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. And then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards, something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire and there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance, such was the appearance of the likeness, of the glory of the Lord. Any of you ever seen that vision before? And when I saw it, what's it say? I fell on my face. And I heard a voice speaking. Now, if there is one thing that the Spirit seeks to do, it's to make us to recognize God's complete and utter sovereignty and holiness. He reveals to us that in the face of God's plans and His wisdom, we are powerless and ignorant in comparison to God. In the presence of His power and His holiness, we are put in our proper place. Is that right? In Ezekiel's case, it was where? On his face. God's holiness put him on his face. And almost without exception in the Bible, whenever a person recognized that he or she was in the presence of God, human arrogance gave way to authentic humility. Overwhelmed with who God is and how unworthy and incapable they were to stand before him. And all pride is cast aside and cast to the wind. It's not a matter of thinking about it. You don't think, oh, I'm in the presence of God. I better be humble. It's an instant reaction. Abraham fell on his face. Moses removed his shoes. Isaiah pleaded for cleansing. Peter begged Jesus to depart out of the boat that he was in, for he was a sinful man. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John recoiled in fear at the voice of God. Saul of Tarsus collapsed in the street on his way to Damascus. The apostle John fell as a dead man on the Isle of Patmos. Different reactions, yet identical realizations that in the presence of God, all of our knowledge, all of our man-made theological structures, all of our preconceived ideas, and our self-induced, overinflated egos unravel before him. In the presence of the Almighty, we come to the crashing realization that we are physically weak-kneed and spiritually sin-drenched people. Have you ever been in that place? It's not a pretty picture, is it? And it could very well be the reason why so many people hold back from getting too close to God. Yet it is precisely to that point that the Spirit must bring us first. That's where we begin. It is only then when our human arrogance is transformed into authentic humility that we become useful to God, And the beauty is that he doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't abandon us there. That brings us to the second thing that we see here is that the spirit transforms our human frailties into supernatural abilities. Ezekiel chapter 2, look at the first two verses. Then he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. Famous Hollywood producer once said that for a movie to be successful, it must start with an earthquake and work up to a climax. In order for our spiritual lives to be successful, it must start with a heartquake, a shaking loose of our pride and work up to a climactic realization that the Spirit of God brings transforming power into our lives. God's holiness put Ezekiel on his face and it was only God's Spirit that could put him on his feet. Again, verse 2, As he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet. What a contrast. As Ezekiel is shaking in his proverbial shoes... God speaks to him and he gives him instructions and then he fills him with the power to carry those instructions out. And he calls him Son of Man. Son of Man, stand on your feet. In Hebrew, it's the word Ben Adam, which means Son of Adam. The Living Bible paraphrases this phrase as son of dust. I love that. I love that phrase, son of dust. Because that's a great description of what you and I are, isn't it? We're sons of dust. Really a lump of dirt. By calling him son of dust, it's as if God was reminding Ezekiel of his human frailty, of his human weakness. In fact, that's exactly what he was doing. He reminded him of it over 90 times in the book of Ezekiel. God initiated Ezekiel into the ministry by showing him that it was only through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit that he could accomplish what he was called to do. You think that we can do anything more than Ezekiel? It's exactly the same for us. As believers, God has something for each one of us to do that will influence eternity. Just think about that statement for a moment. God has something for each of you to do as a Christian that will influence eternity. You have a mission to change the world for Christ. And you will never accomplish any of that until the Holy Spirit enters you and transforms you. You may think, well, what can I do? I don't have a talent. I don't speak eloquently. I don't play music. I've never taught a class. I can't heal the sick. I certainly can't raise the dead. And I can't do anything. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Well, neither could the disciples. At least not until the Spirit turned their human frailties ...into supernatural abilities. Turn in your Bibles, hold your finger in Ezekiel 2... ...but turn to Acts chapter 2 for a moment. Actually, yeah, you can turn there and follow along... ...but I'm going to read it to you out of a different translation. I'm going to read it to you out of the New Living Translation... ...because I think it brings out a lot of color into this text. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place... ...and suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm... ...and it filled the house where they were sitting... How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and areas of Libya and around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about these wonderful things that God has done. Now, what about these guys? You know, we've read that text so often, so many times, that we have spiritually romanticized it, haven't we? I make no mistake, I'm not saying that the first Pentecost will ever be repeated. I don't think it will ever happen again quite like that. But don't miss the principle behind the passage. These were ordinary human beings who were filled with and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were never the same after that day. They were not the same. They began carrying out what Jesus sent them to do. Not because they discovered some renewed sense of motivation, but because they were changed people. And I think we forget that. I think we forget we're changed people after we come to Christ. We don't see these guys as being a regular bunch of church-going people like us. Author Robert Coleman removes the blinders and takes away the halos we've assigned to them. He says, none of them occupied prominent places in the synagogues. Nor did any of them belong to the Levitical priesthood. For the most part, they were common laboring men. They had no academic degrees in the arts and philosophies of their day. Most of them were raised in the poor section of the country. Around Galilee. Apparently, the only one of the twelve who came from the more refined region of Judea was, guess who? Judas Iscariot. By any standard of sophisticated culture, then and now, they would surely be considered as a rather ragged aggregation of souls. One might wonder how Jesus could ever use them. They were impulsive temperamental, easily offended. They had all the prejudices of their environment. In short, these men selected by the Lord to be his assistants represented an average cross-section of the lot of society in their day. Not the kind of group that one would expect to win the world for Christ. They were weak. They were frail. They were human beings. Sons of dust, just like Ezekiel, just like you, just like me. All God's servants are that way. And on that day, they were a minority in the land, remember? Minority. Yet they turned the world upside down. How did they do that? What was the secret? Well, it's the same one that transformed Ezekiel's human frailties into supernatural abilities and will transform ours as well, the living power of the Holy Spirit. Every last one of us in this room needs a personal Pentecost. Listen, my friends, the Holy Spirit's primary focus is the transformation of your life. He transforms human arrogance into authentic humility and human frailties into supernatural abilities. Now, what am I saying? Am I saying that you're going to go out from here after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're going to start doing supernatural things? Yeah. (laughs) You think that when you talk to somebody and share the gospel of Jesus Christ and the tears start to well up in their eyes and they get this gut check And all of a sudden their shoulders are shaking and their heads are bowed and they go down on their knees and they say, I need Jesus. You think your argumentation did that? No. That's the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit that God is using you to work with. So yes, when the Holy Spirit enters your life, he will transform, transform your human frailty into a supernatural ability. Listen, my friends, again, he transforms human arrogance into authentic humility, human frailties into supernatural abilities, and thirdly, the Holy Spirit transforms our human uncertainty into a spiritual identity. Again, back in Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 3, then he said to me, son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I'm sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. But as for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. There is one sure result when the Spirit transforms your life. you will be identified. We talked about that a little bit last time, about how Daniel stood for what he believed in, was right, what God had laid down, drew the line, and because of that, he would be persecuted. And when we do that, we will be too. When the Holy Spirit transforms your life and you begin to speak for God, you will be identified. The Spirit never transforms us solely for our own pleasure or our own benefit. He transforms us for God's greater glory. It's not just so that you can go to heaven because God could just take you there just like that. He left you here for a purpose. He wants to use you to build his kingdom. He wants to use you to preach the good news to other people. He wants to use you to bring glory to his name. He equips us with that spirit to spread his word and to bring glory to Christ. That is one of the criteria by which we must test every movement and every ministry that ever springs up. Is it bringing glory to God or is it highlighting the glory of man? Very much like Ezekiel, we are people sent by God. Now let me ask you a question. Do you view yourself as a sent person? Really? Really? Really, do you view yourself as a sent person? That makes all the difference in the world, you know. God's call put Ezekiel on the field. God's holiness put him on his face. God's spirit put him on his feet. And God's call put him on the field. And he puts us on that field as well. As disciples of Christ, we are unleashed into a world which is often stark, raving, mad at God. It's a world that has given God the finger. Isn't it? Look at verse 4. I'm sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. That is the picture of what every unbelieving generation has done to God from Ezekiel's to ours. And he has released us, his people, and commissioned us, you and me, to proclaim the gospel of salvation and to point people to his living word, Jesus Christ. That is a little unnerving to say the least, wouldn't you say? Because there is no more difficult or painful responsibility than that of speaking to people who are unwilling to listen, unwilling to hear. But when God sends, he also empowers. The Holy Spirit is the transforming power that allows us to accomplish this astronomical commission in the face of such defiance. Have you ever been in a situation where you don't even know how it happened, but all of a sudden... Stuff just started coming out of your mouth to somebody. The things of God. And the conversation takes a major turn. And you walk away from that encounter just shaking your head and going, what just happened? How did that happen? It's one of the most equipping feelings in the world, isn't it? Have you ever thought to yourself, I pray to And I am empowered by the same exact God that Ezekiel was praying to and being empowered by. Or Elijah. Or the same God that Peter, James, and John, and all the apostles and prophets prayed to and were empowered by. You ever think that way? Not probably on a regular basis. I don't. But it's true. It's absolutely true. And after this radical change in his normal way of life, Ezekiel probably didn't look any different physically, although God had him do some pretty wild things in his ministry physically. He didn't automatically become an expert on every single subject. Why is it that we Christians think that we have to have an answer for everything? He didn't become culturally sophisticated automatically or intellectually astute. He was the same on the outside but transformed on the inside and the results of his ministry would be discouraging at best. God even told him it was going to be discouraging. As one of his contemporaries, Jeremiah, lamented before God because Jeremiah's ministry was much the same as Ezekiel's. He was sent to a people that would not listen to him, that were stubborn, obstinate, and rebellious. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 10, Jeremiah says, I answered, Who would listen to me if I spoke to them and warned them? They are stubborn and refuse to listen to your message, Lord. They laugh at what you tell me to say. We're not alone in this, you know. Nobody wanted to hear what Ezekiel had to say. Nobody wants to hear, thus saith the Lord. Or this is what the Lord says. Or the Bible says, this is what we'd say today. Jesus said, God says, the Bible says, Nobody wanted to hear Ezekiel, but he was compelled to speak anyway, even in the face of opposition. And they would know, God said, that a transformed man, a prophet, was in their midst. How are people going to know that a prophet is in their midst? When they see you doing exactly what God tells you to do, even when it's not accepted by the culture around you. That's the pattern of a person whose life has been invaded by the Spirit of God. He's identifiable. She's identifiable as having been with Jesus Christ. And you know what? He or she doesn't mind it a bit. What better company to be in? Remember the disciples cowering in the upper room, hiding from the public after Jesus' death in the Scriptures? The last thing they wanted in their life was to be identified. But what happened to them after the Spirit transformed them at Pentecost? What happened? Did they hide? No, they hit the streets and they did not fear the opposition any longer. Acts chapter 2. Follow with me as I do a little bit of a journey through Acts. With you, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 38. Keep in mind, these guys were cowering in a room previous to the Holy Spirit transforming them. Verse 38, chapter 2, Peter said to them, Repent. And let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them saying be saved from this perverse generation. Chapter 3 verse 12. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, "'Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? "'Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety "'we had made him walk? "'The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, "'the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus, "'the one whom you delivered and disowned "'in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. "'But you disowned the holy and righteous one "'and asked for a murderer to be granted to you.' But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Verse 19. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Totally different man, isn't he? All of a sudden. Chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. Verse 8. Then Peter... Filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which the builders rejected, which you rejected which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed. Verse 18... And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about that which we have seen and heard. In John 15, Jesus said these words. He said, when the helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, Who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also. And here's the reason why because you have been with me from the beginning. You get that? It's not really you that's doing it, it's the Holy Spirit that's doing it. And you're identified as one who has come to Christ. Listen, friends, we're up against it too. Like Ezekiel and the early disciples, we have been sent to a society that is obstinate, that is stubborn. They no longer know how to blush at sin. They don't want to hear about the truth. They don't want to hear what you and I have to say. And they certainly don't want to see it operating in your life on a daily basis. But when your life has truly been invaded by the Spirit, people are going to see it they will begin to recognize you as having been with Jesus. Not because you carry a thick Bible around with you. Not that. Not because you dress differently or you speak churchy language. But because your heart has been transformed and you do not shy away from being identified with Christ. Period. The Spirit not only transforms our human uncertainty into a spiritual identity, but number four, the Holy Spirit transforms our human insecurity into courageous stability. Acts chapter 5, verse 27. Follow along with me. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. You see how courageous they were? A man appears before the pearly gates. St. Peter asks, have you ever done anything of particular merit? Well, I can think of one thing, the man says. Once, I came upon a gang of bikers who were threatening a young woman. I directed them to leave her alone, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't listen to me. They were obstinate, rebellious, stubborn. So I approached the largest and most heavily tattooed of the group And I smacked him on the head and I kicked his bike over, ripped out his nose ring and threw it on the ground and I told him, leave her alone now or you will have to answer to me. St. Peter was so impressed. He says, when did all this happen? And the man said, just a couple of minutes ago. (laughs) There's there's a big difference between faith and foolishness, right? Right? So, when we look at these guys and we say, wow, they look a little foolish here. No, no, no. This is the Holy Spirit giving them the courage. They didn't muster this up on their own, the Spirit gave it to them. There are two kinds of courage, writes William Barclay. There is the reckless courage, which is scarce aware of the dangers it is facing, like this guy with the biker. And then there is a far higher, cool courage, which knows the peril in which it stands and refuses to be daunted. It's that second kind of courage that the disciples transformed by the Spirit displayed here. As one man has noted, instead of running from the public, they ran toward them. Instead of hoping not to be seen, they they exhorted total strangers to repent. Repent. Instead of being frightened by insults, warnings, and threats, they stood face to face with their accusers, and they did not blink. When told to keep it quiet, they answered very unflinchingly, we must obey God rather than men. Now, you need to remember who Peter was talking to when he made that statement. You realize who he was talking to? He was addressing the wealthiest, most intellectual, and most powerful audience in the land. The very court which condemned Jesus to death. The Sanhedrin. The old fisherman who once cowered at the inquiry of a courtyard servant girl and denied Christ. Not once, not twice, but three times stood before this court, not as their victim, but as God's unmistakable and unshakable voice. How did all that happen? The Holy Spirit transformed his life. God's word put him on the foundation. And that's an incredibly stable foundation, isn't it? And that can happen to you and me. And it happens. And you read about it. We, we, we think, how could I ever stand up to somebody like that? Well, let me give you a little snippet. Some years ago, Pauline Jacoby, 92 years old. 92-year-old woman had just finished loading her groceries into her car at a local Walmart, in Dyer County, Tennessee. She got into her car, and a moment later, a man climbed into the passenger seat. He said he had a gun, and that he would shoot her if she did not hand over all of her money. 92-year-old woman. And what she did next did not involve pepper spray, martial arts, or anything but it did save her life and it might have saved his. Pauline calmly refused her would-be robber not once, not twice, three times. And then she said, you know, as quick as you kill me, I'll go to heaven and you'll go to hell. And then she told him that he needed to ask God's forgiveness. Jesus, she said, is in this car right now. And he goes with me wherever I go, everywhere I go. And Jacoby said that the man looked around and then tears began to form in his eyes. And he began to weep. For 10 more minutes, Jacoby shared with the man, the gospel of Jesus. Finally, he said, quote, I think I will go home tonight and pray. But Jacoby told him that he didn't need to wait to pray, that he could pray right now. Then Jacoby voluntarily offered the man all the money she had that was on her, 10 bucks, on one condition, that he not spend the money on whiskey. And after that, the man kissed her on the cheek and got out of the car and walked away. Now, we don't know if he ever accepted Christ or not. But friends, you and I may never have to stand testifying for Christ with our lives hanging in the balance. But every day we stand before someone with something on the line, don't we? Every day. Whether it's a job that's at stake or a reputation with our friends, a relationship at school, Credibility with our family members, a non-believing boyfriend or girlfriend, or whatever it might be, it takes more than just the power of positive thinking to do the right thing. It's infinitely more than a matter of self-motivation. When we're faced with a situation similar to Pauline's or Ezekiel's or the disciples, it's going to take a lot more than intestinal fortitude to get through that. It's going to take the power of God's spirit, which equips us with the courage to stand firm and fear God more than you fear man. Ezekiel chapter 2 verse 6 says, and you son of man, neither fear them, Nor fear their words, though thistles and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions. Neither fear their words, nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. Maybe you're in the midst of a personal attack right now. Painful attacks. You're not alone. Remember, as a Christian, you are not a slave to the people. You are a servant of the king. If we're sent to speak for him, then it's him that we must seek to please. Not these other people that won't make one iota of a difference in eternity in your life if you kowtow to their persecution or opposition, right? It takes powerfully transformed life to stand unflinchingly before the world. No question about it. There are thorns, there are thistles, there are scorpions everywhere, but transformation is the Spirit's focus, and if you claim to be a Christian, and you claim to have the Holy Spirit, He is transforming you, He wants to transform you, He's going to transform human arrogance into authentic humility. Human frailties into supernatural abilities. Human uncertainty into a spiritual identity. Human insecurities into confidence, stability. And finally, ultimately, the Holy Spirit transforms our human discouragement into faithful perseverance. Verse 7, God's power enabled him to finish. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. You know what Ezekiel did endure? He spoke God's word to this hard-hearted people for 22 years. The New Testament disciples also endured. Once transformed by the Spirit of God, they never quit proclaiming the good news of Christ's salvation until martyrdom silenced them. Christianity has endured all of these years. Through countless waves of oppression and violence against Christianity, it still remains strong and will remain strong until Christ returns. And friends, those who are transformed by God's spirit will endure until God's plan is complete in your life and in mine. You can count on it. You know, there's one thing stronger than all the armies in the world, wrote Victor Hugo, and that is an idea whose time has come. Friends, the Holy Spirit is much more than a good idea. He is the power that will transform your life, and his time has come. The greatest need in the world today and in the church is men and women transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the question is, will you allow him to transform you? Let's pray. And I would like to read a prayer that closes the book Forgotten God by Francis Chan. Let's join together and pray these words in our hearts as I speak them out loud. Holy Spirit, we know that we have done wrong by you. Please forgive us for grieving and resisting and quenching you. We have resisted you through sin and through our rebellion, through our hardness of heart. At times, we've been spiritually blind. At other times, we knew what you wanted us to do, but we chose to ignore your prompting. Yet this is not how we want to live now. Lord God, we ask you by your Holy Spirit to change us. We need your wisdom and understanding as we seek to live this life. Keep us from disbelief, from fear. We need your strength to help us to do what you are asking us to do and to live how you are asking us to live. Speak loudly and drown out the sound of other voices calling us to conform to the patterns of this world. For you are the spirit of self-control and love, so give us the self-control needed to deny our flesh and follow you. Give us a love strong enough to motivate courageous action. Manifest yourself through us, Lord, that we may serve and love your bride, the church, as you do. Come, Holy Spirit, come. We don't know exactly what that means or looks like for each one of us yet or in the particular places that you've called us to inhabit. But nonetheless, whatever it means, we ask for your presence. Come, Holy Spirit, come. In the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, I pray, amen.